Anyway, we'll see what we can do about editing out my sickness. That's the uh, that's the worst part. How how will we do that? I don't know. There must be a filter, you know, <laughs> high pass filter, low pass filter, sickness filter. Oh yeah, uh, my my friend who I um, I texted you her comments. Yeah. About like that that stuff you got that right? I did. Is she an audio engineer? How does she, she know she does, this much? She, she's like does like music stuff, so okay. she knows like levels and all that. No, stuff. it's very helpful. It's very yeah, helpful. Yeah. Good, um, good. I mean, you know, I'm just figuring this out as we go along. Uh, yeah, and it's fun. I mean, I'm enjoying it, but it's uh, it's good to get uh, like professional advice from people who yeah, actually know yeah. what the hell they're doing. Totally. Yeah. You know, Demir. You know what I felt today? I so I was trying to prepare for this conversation by. I wanted to get angry about something because I felt kind of a little bit listless yeah. on my way here. And I realized that part of the problem is to get excited about things, I need some kind of provocation. Mm-hmm. So you want me to provoke you? <laughs> I, I have to say, Shadi, I'm just I'm too tired to actually provoke you. I just got off a flight three yeah, hours ago. So, yeah. so that's well, gonna we'll be figure hard. something out. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to get angry about something. I mean, I, again, I left on Friday and it, it, it felt like there was a lot to get angry about. This was. Wait, what, what happened on Friday? It was, it was, when did we record? Last Wednesday, I feel. Yeah, so it was right in the heat of the impeachment stuff. And we recorded in the heat of the impeachment stuff. And then, uh, after that, you know, it just sort of spread and there was corruption allegations and, uh, people were resigning and, uh, you know, subpoenas for. Wait, all that happened? Yeah. Since last, what, Wednesday? Yeah, it all okay. happened as, as I was leaving on Friday. Oh. I don't know. I don't know if, if that's worth getting angry about, but it, it, it's, uh, it was certainly a good feeling to get out of DC as that was kicking up because it seems like it would, it would have been just like a bunch of, a bunch of noise and not much signal going on for this whole. Yeah, that's kind of how I've felt. And that's why I haven't really been paying that much attention to all those developments. And that's what I was telling you about last, last time, all this procedural stuff, which right. I just don't find that interesting. Well, anyway, we, yeah. we promised our readers uh, last our, week. Our that, readers or our listeners? Oh, goodness. <laughs> or our viewers. Our viewers, our viewers, our dear viewers and listeners, and perhaps readers. We should get a service that tr- transcribes these things, and then we'll have readers <laughs> as well. Um, that we talk about, uh, you know, on your last trip, you had uh, uh, some thoughts about about uh, refugees and, and uh and exiles, I think, is how you put it. Yeah. So, do you want to start with that and go to Holbrook, or the other way around? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I was going to say I, it, it feels like we could do uh, however you want because it's it could be uh, kind of you know part of the same discussion. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, you know, there's that book by George Packer uh, about Holbrook that uh, I have some thoughts about. I think it it charts uh, uh, a certain moment in American history, and I think uh, from what you've been tweeting. I mean, I, I wonder. We're probably not that far off on some things, though. Probably diametrically. Yeah, let's dive right into the Holbrook. And you want to maybe set set the stage a little bit for our, for our listeners about, like, you know, what is this all about? Huh? What's it all about? It's a book. It's a not book every. Right? I don't want to. Pre- I mean, I'm sure our listeners are very intelligent. Yeah. But that said, some of them won't be familiar with. I mean, Holbrook isn't the most famous person in the world. I mean, maybe in in our DC circles, he is. Right. Right. But um, oh, and I, you know, my mom's now a regular listener, and she's getting into it. Mm. Um, she kind of went backwards. She started, I think, with episode four, and that's how she learned about my Georgia trip. Because mm. when I came back from that, I didn't tell my mom a whole lot about it. And she's like, "Shaddy, I found out about your trip from the podcast, and I got like all these details about what you were up to." And then she went um, to to episode one. Um, I don't, yeah. So, like, for my mom, who I don't think is familiar with Holbrook, how would you describe him and and the book in the in the context of this conversation? 
Okay, that's that's uh, that's a lot. Let's try and sort of boil that down a little bit. Holbrook was a diplomat, um, and uh, as you said, he's sort of I don't know notorious and famous in D.C. Though not all that successful. Actually, I had an interesting. I had an interesting. Uh, uh, I was just in Berlin this past weekend, and uh, I was talking to uh, a German friend, a diplomat there, um, and he made the point that you know, uh, if a diplomat has one success, one huge success, that's that's a huge thing. Most diplomats just go through you know the career being decent diplomats, but not having any great success. Uh, but it's interesting. This this biography of Richard Holbrook came out um, this year, a couple of months ago. Um, and it's, it seeks to sort of trace the man's life, but then also makes an argument that, uh, Holbrook's life represents a kind of arc in American history as well. Um, George Packer, the author, makes the case that the arc begins in the post World War II period and the sort of creation of the now fabled liberal world order. Um, uh, Holbrook himself is born around the end of World War II, uh, ends up growing up around some of the architects of uh, the Cold War order, um, ends up as a young man in Vietnam and has formative experiences in Vietnam. Uh, his next sort of eruption into, you know, the public world, um, he ends up being the, the youngest, I think, uh, uh, assistant secretary for state for Asia under yeah. Carter, uh, after that, uh, ends up um, advising Clinton uh, as Clinton is running. He's a Democrat. Doesn't get a, a post right away, but ends up being uh, appointed a special representative for uh, Bosnia. Um, and um, is largely responsible for helping broker the Dayton Peace yeah. Accords. Um, after that, uh, he goes, He's, I believe he's UN ambassador. Um you know, in and out of private sector, and there's a whole different question about that, which yeah, is interesting right. about how, you know, the sort of revolving door operates for, even for, you know, famous sort of humanitarian people like, like Holbrook. And then the, uh, the, the sort of the ending arc of the story is, uh, Holbrook getting, um, uh, trying to get a job with Obama. Again, failing to get a real job gets, uh, Gets appointed. To be fair, I mean, it was a real job. It maybe wasn't what he wanted. So he he was appointed a special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, or as it's sometimes known, SRAP or SRAP or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I didn't get to the end of the book. And I actually, I read about 50 pages today, and I'm glad that I did because I wanted to get more into the Obama era. And that really, that actually made me angry this morning. Yeah. Um, and well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Anger. So I'm just remembering how I felt this morning. Um, but I, you know, people who know me know that it, I have a Obama really bothers me in certain ways. And, um, and my mom's sometimes like, Shaddy, don't be so hard on Obama. He was a good man. He was a moral man. And that's what almost makes it more tragic is that I think that Obama was brilliant. I think that he was a moral, upright character. I think that in some sense he wanted to do good in the world. And then so part of what this book I think conveys is a kind of tragedy. How is it that a good, moral, even brilliant president can fail? Um, that's maybe more what I got out of at least the last parts of the book. And that's not actually the focus of the book. The focus of the book is on Holbrook, the man. 
but also what he represents. And I think he represents something quite different than what Obama represents. That Holbrook was, he was a, he was a big personality. He was ambitious. He was flawed. He lived life on this epic scope. He had enemies because anyone presumably with a big flawed personality is going to piss some people off, especially here in Washington where I, I feel especially it's more so this way today with folks from our generation where if you, if you have an ambition to get a top government job, you're going to be careful. You're going to try to not say too many interesting things because being creative, interesting, having big ideas could actually be a liability. And especially now when everyone's watching every single word that you say and, you know, scouring your Twitter accounts from like seven years ago or whatever, I think it's going to go more and more in this direction of careful, uninteresting people who, and Holbrook was not that. Holbrook was not careful. He wasn't cautious. And he overwhelmed people with the sheer force of his personality. And you have these little vignettes in the book where Holbrook would just like rampage into people's offices and just like stick his feet onto the desk and like pretend that it was his office. And he would kind of like say like um, absurd egomaniacal things to various colleagues and, um, you know, in government. And that rubbed people the wrong way. And one people he really rubbed the wrong way was Susan Rice, um, but also Madeleine Albright. The list goes on. A lot of people really, really didn't like Richard Holbrook, but there were, there was another contingent who had, who I think developed such a deep respect for him that for all of his flaws, he was, he, he represented, and maybe I'm, I'm sort of going too much into what, um, Packer, I think, is trying to convey, but it's also what I, what I think, uh, in part because I align more probably with Holbrook than, than with maybe other figures in the Obama administration or previous administrations that, that, um, he represented something great about America. And when I think about, I felt proud reading certain sections of the book that for all of his faults as a human being, he really wanted to stop mass suffering and he wanted to just, and he used his aggressiveness, that, that force of his personality to just like, um, come up with these dip, diplomatic feats. And that, can you really have diplomatic feats without really strong personalities who are just going to like barrel through and he barrel through to Dayton? And there's some really interesting scenes with Milosevic, the, um, the war criminal, uh, I don't even really know how to describe him, but, um. President of Serbia. <laughs> President of Serbia plus war criminal, um, where, you know, they had these long marathon nights of just trying to find some of this kind of, um, it was almost what, how would you describe a, a kind of, um, a perf- where it's a, it's a, it's a face to face kind of, you know, where one person has to kind of, um, overwhelm the other and they're kind of playing almost this game with words and how much do you, how much do you give to your, to your opponent? But they're, they're also in some sense not opponents because they're, they're doing this together. And there was a friendly, almost a friendly competitive. And they would go back and forth from like being pissed off at each other or, or even hating each other in certain moments, but then there would be this kind of friendly, you know, so it's just like interesting to see how two big characters 
obviously one one a terrible character in human history and the other not that you know however flawed he might have been and how it's ultimately two personalities in a room two big personalities in a room yeah look um i if you like those parts again i i I warmly recommend i think i mentioned to you offline uh holbrook's own book to end a war because a lot of the stuff in packer's book relies heavily on that because and and you know uh holbrook writes really well he's an excellent writer on top of everything else so if you like that 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 whole sort of large personalities you know, uh, twisting each other's arms, dancing around each other, pressure. Dancing, yes. That, that whole thing. If that's, if that's, uh, interesting to you, uh, warmly recommend that to you. You know, the, the, <clears throat> the way maybe to talk about the book, um, that's interesting to me. And maybe I can ask you a question of how you came at it. Um, Packer, I think you're right. You mentioned that. George Packer basically creates a certain kind of character of Holbrook um, and amplifies him to a certain extent. Um, but maybe that's not fair because he really was sort of a larger-than-life character. I think uh, one of Holbrook's best friends, Les Gelb, uh, when he was uh, eulogizing him, said that you know only a novel could could basically capture capture the scope of. And a it guy. reads like a novel. And he reads for like a precisely novel. Precisely that reason. And that's right. Yeah. I, uh, Packer Packer took him up on that. Um, but there's the other element of the story, which is, I was alluding to that earlier, Packard, you know, the, the, the book is called also, you know, uh, what is it, Our Man, uh, Richard Holbrook, and The End of the American Century. Yeah. I think that's the, the, the subtitle. Um, Packer makes the case, though, that, that basically you, we have this short American century that ends at the end of, the, of World War II, uh, begins at the end of World War II, excuse me, uh, and ends... Um, um, well, you know, with Holbrook's death, more or less. So, at some point in the Obama administration, did you buy that? Did you buy that that there's a uh, an arc? Yeah, there? I guess I buy it. I would maybe we can debate when the original sin was, or like the um, maybe not the original sin, but maybe the defining moment where we couldn't really recover. So that's that's more not that's less an original sin and more. That something really broke at yeah. a certain point, and that could be 2003, the Iraq War. So that's an argument to be made. Um, 9/11 in in terms of shattering the innocence of the post um, post Cold War era. Um, but I think Obama, the Obama administration, does capture a shift in the sense that um, it normalizes a kind of lack of faith in what America can do abroad. And maybe that's not a charitable reading of what Obama represented. It's how I see him in part, that Obama was much more skeptical about what we could do. And in some ways, he wanted to manage our decline in a responsible way. If I had to sort of sum up what I think Obama, he probably wouldn't put it that way, but um, but a kind of America cannot do what it, has been doing it has fallen into hubris time and time again and obviously for obama the rock war was the the pinnacle of that of, of that failure and obama wanted to transition the us to something more modest and we should say something about the substance of what and the content of holbrook's beliefs cuz we've talked about him as a big personality but what was he a big personality for he was a believer as well and 
you know, he was pragmatic in his own way as a diplomat, but he was also an idealist. A believer, though, not not a religious man, from what we could tell. Oh, yeah, sorry. Right? So, I yeah. Mean, because in the end, he's 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 Jewish, but he has a sort of a, a tortured re, uh, relationship to his past. His parents yes. are completely, you know, in the background, not mentioned. He never talks about them, tears up over his dad, but never really actually engages with his past. Yeah. So, believer a in... A believer in, in the kind of broader sense of the word and, you know... An, an idealist, really. An idealist, yeah. yeah. And I say believer because I think that gets at something, it was more in the core of his being, that he wanted to use American military power, or at least the credible threat of American military power, to produce better, more peaceful outcomes and to stop large-scale human suffering. And that's part of what he he he, he became passionate and almost obsessed with in the case of Bosnia. Yep. And then... In Afghanistan, in a sort of different way, since he also he, he had a, also a skepticism about U.S. power. So I don't want to make it sound like he's someone who really believed in the primacy of. I mean, he he saw it as part of a, a tool a toolkit, if you will. He also saw the dangers of relying on it too much because of his experiences in Vietnam, and that's where he got his start. Right. So, and there is this theme in the book where he's always kind of grappling with the ghosts of Vietnam that he's never able to fully let go. And there's some interesting um, conversations. And I, I found some of these vignettes kind of hilarious in a sad way where it's him and Obama talking and Holbrook is going on and on about the ghosts of Vietnam. And Holbrook also had a kind of portentous way sometimes of talking and writing and speaking. So sometimes he would he would be reading off some notes in front of Obama and other people like I don't know in the situation room or wherever it might be and he's kind of he's talking about what's happening now in Afghanistan but he's talking about it as if he was a historian writing about it 20 years later so he's already aware he's almost trying to create his own moment in history and talking about current events in this kind of grand way that everything is part of this this narrative and this story and there are villains and there is tragedy and there is hope and there is disappointment and obama's like it's you know really a you know really interesting obama's like wait um richard are you reading from something like what are you doing now and then but holbrook would just keep on going on and then obama would be like richard what is this but Holbrook, because he also lacked self-awareness, he couldn't always get the cues and he wasn't always able to adapt and to readjust. And Obama just didn't have time for that. Because Obama's, you know, and George Packer describes Obama somewhere somewhere towards the end as um, a technocrat disguised as a visionary. We thought in the beginning that Obama was a visionary and idealist, but what we found out he was a cold, cerebral technocrat who I would say, and this is where I'm obviously editorializing here, Obama was small-minded. He was petty. He was cold. And there's some reference to uh, Holbrook eventually realizing Obama had ice water in his veins. Like this, he's such a cold, like he, there was no warmth. There was no, it's, and this is why I think that Obama could become so detached in very key moments that I think required a kind of a sympathy for the victims of, so in, in Syria, for example, that Obama didn't seem like he could really feel that. It, he couldn't feel it in his bones. He saw it as 
as a geopolitical quandary and he 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 assessed it and analyzed it in this kind of very cold detached way but at the end of the day when half a million people are being killed by a brutal dictator it's not an analytical question it's a moral question yeah <clears throat> you know so yes um so I have, a, I, have a, I have a quote here from uh, Strobe Talbot. It's not from the book. It's actually from another book. Um, it's called The Unquiet American, which was after Holbrook died. So it was a bunch of essays, both by Holbrook and by people writing about Holbrook. Mm. Um, he said, his was a purpose-driven utilitarian view of policymaking and diplomacy. Figure out what will advance American interests and defend American values. Make a hard-headed calculation about the risk and costs enlist key allies, find the best means of subduing your adversaries, and then get the job done. And then a little, like, next paragraph, uh, a little while later. During a visit I made to Dayton early in the negotiations, I asked him what the principal issues were. Never mind the substance, he said. The whole point at this stage is to get these guys in a frame of mind where they want an agreement. The substance will fall into place later. Again, dot, dot, dot. On another occasion, I asked him how our exertions in the Balkans fit into the larger goals of American foreign policy. Again, he was dismissive of the premise. Forget the sweep of history crap, he said. Our goal is to end a war. Those last four words became the title of his 1998 book on peace. Uh, and that he made in Bosnia. Let me just, you know, just to, 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 to harp on that. Um, <clears throat> Bosnia and Dayton was, was on, on one hand, a huge success. Um, it ended the war. To end a war, as he said there, you know, it's like, and that's all that matters. That's sort of what you were saying, you know. People are getting killed. It's just a moral question. Uh, assess it. It's it's an affront to American values. Uh, figure out the risks, costs, benefits. Get your allies on your side. Do something about it. That's it. That's how Holbrook approached things. Um, and you're right. I think, you know, that drove Obama insane because that's not how Obama approached this. And Obama was, you know, a different, in a different mold. Um, but again, you know, Obama partly was in a different mold because I think he was also elected as a result of uh, a certain kind of frustration among American voters with that certain kind of idealism. So again, let me just throw this out there and then you can react and, and talk more about it. But what strikes me about the about Packer's framing is he talks about the long American century. It starts in 1945 and then ends with Obama or something like that. I think that's, that's kind of wrong. Um, it's the Cold War, it's its own thing. And, uh, I think it's a mistake to conflate it too much with, with, with what comes after in a lot of ways. Um, what we're really talking about is the sort of long American decade, uh, of 1995, the end of, uh, the war in Bosnia that Holbrook manages to create. Uh, and then that decade largely ends with Holbrook's death, uh, in Clinton's office, and I won't give it away since you you haven't gotten to yeah, it. Yet, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's gripping. It's that's one of I think it's Packer at his at his uh, uh, at his most uh, virtuoso, you know, describing the the death of Richard Holbrook. Um, but it's uh, it's interesting to me that that you know uh, while there's so much to admire about Holbrook, Dayton um, itself. And Holbrook himself, I think, came to realize it later was, uh, well, it was never supposed to end up being the final status constitution. Um, but the, uh, the end result, you know, despite having ended the war, um, and the peace is still holding, uh, there was no, there was no sense of, and then what? Um, there were no sense of, 
uh, a larger strategic thing. And it comes through in what, what, what Strobe Talbot is talking about. Um, so when you, you approach something as there's a moral imperative and get out of the way because we have to do something morally, uh, because we're America, God damn it. Um, that's very admirable, but at the same time, it's also part of what leads, I would say, you know, to a certain disillusionment among Americans over time, which leads to the election of Obama and has, you know, again, caveating heavily that Americans don't vote for foreign policy as, you know, first, second, third, fourth yeah. uh, main issue. Uh, it's also why, why, you know, Trump is Obama on steroids, uh, as far as these things go. Um, I mean, one could say that, that Trump had that, that softy moment when he launched Tomahawk missiles because of the, the dead babies that he was shown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Obama would have never have done that. But, uh, apart from that, the instinct's the same and it's channeling, I think, a certain kind of something. So, you know, my, my analysis of the book, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, Packer, Packer is, is doing an elegy of both Holbrook and, you know, in his mind, an American century that goes from 1945 in my mind that goes from 1995 until, until some point in, uh, uh, in Obama's term. But, uh, and, and we should, you know, admire Holbrook, but I think what's missing there, in, in Packer's telling is that, and it's sort of missing in what, what, how you were just getting riled up about, <laughs> about, about, you know, the, the moral imperative is that it seems to me that to a certain extent, once you make boil everything down to moral imperative, God damn it, you lead yourself into a series of engagements with no plan, no strategy, with a kind of, again, faith that, uh, well, you know, we give them democracy and we free them and, you know, the chips, let them fall as they may, they'll fall in generally a decent way and we'll have a decent future. Um, that, that has been undermined, I would say, because, uh, maybe the faith was oversold. Uh, maybe the outcomes were oversold. Um, maybe the costs were undersold, but I, I, I would, I would argue that that's, that to me is also Holbrook's legacy, not, Obama's legacy, but Holbrook's legacy, uh, because Dayton leads to Iraq too, leads to, uh, uh, you know, also Madeleine Albright and the indispensable nation stuff and leads to this kind of sense from 1995 on until, you know, basically the financial crisis, I would say, of a sense that America needs to be the superhero that solves the world. Again, uh, yeah, well, I wouldn't say that Dayton leads to Iraq too. I feel like Iraq too was very much <clears throat> Bush contingent. I don't think that if Gore would have won, that we would have seen the same, the same developments, at least certainly not in the same way. Um, and, you know, I'm someone who is, I'm pretty hawkish and definitely, I guess, an interventionist. I don't see that as a pejorative word. I think it's somewhat descriptive. I, I believe in certain kinds of intervention and specifically humanitarian intervention, but I was very much against the Iraq war. And one of the reasons that I was excited about Obama uh, when I was in grad school and I was a believer in Obama is because I thought that his opposition to the Iraq war signified some pretty good judgment where most people in DC had gotten that wrong. And 
I probably told you this before that my ideal foreign policy is basically the Bush freedom agenda minus the Iraq war. And that's why for me, the Iraq war is such a tragedy, not just in terms of um, the loss of life and what it did to Iraq and Iraqis and, and that, that level of devastation, but also um, that it undermined what were otherwise good sound ideas when it came to supporting democracy abroad. And Bush was one of, Bush was unique in that way that he talked about, he talked about our, our tragic history of propping up authoritarian regimes. And there was almost a sense that we had to atone for that. And I wanted us to atone for what we had done and what we, our failure to actually live up to our ideals. So I would, you know, I, I, I worry sometimes about talking about interventionism as this thing that inevitably leads to the Bush failures of the Iraq war. I, it didn't have to be that way. And there are ways to kind of bracket out and say there are different kinds of intervention. Um, but Holbrook, it, it sh- is worth noting, did support the Iraq war and he came to regret that. And he made the wrong choice on that. And I think that he felt pressure to support the Iraq war because he didn't want to be seen as weak on military intervention. That was, I think that, that is something that comes through in the book that there is a generation of democratic and liberal foreign policy thinkers who didn't really feel strongly about supporting the Iraq war, but they felt they kind of had to because of this legacy of Democrats being seen as weak on foreign policy and soft and Republicans would always attack them for being soft. So they always had to burnish their their kind of militaristic credentials, even if they themselves were not fully convinced of the merits of that militarism. So certainly that's 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 where Obama got it right and Holbrook got it wrong. So there's that, and we have to be straight up about that, right? Um, Can I ask you yeah. <clears throat> on Iraq? Um, uh, what? How do you how do you square how do you square uh, you know, the brutality of the Saddam regime and, and you know, uh, doing something about it or not doing something about it. What's the, what's the red line that Assad starts, you know, kicks off a civil war as opposed to merely a well-entrenched uh, repressive regime that is kept in a box? So as long as yeah. Saddam's in a box is fine? How do you how do you square that? So I wouldn't have supported intervention against the Assad regime in Syria in 2009 or 2008 and Assad was was brutal then, right? What changed in 2011 was the Arab Spring and specifically the Syrian uprising that here were um uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people over time taking to the streets to protest this regime and they were and it was peaceful. Um, certainly at first and for a significant period, it, it, it started out as a peaceful uprising. And when Assad started gunning people down in the streets, that to me changed the calculation. So in 2003 with the, with the Saddam regime, Saddam, there wasn't an uprising in 2003. And therefore Saddam wasn't killing um, thousands of people and all, or tens of thousands of people in the street in 2003. He had done that before. So that, that to me is important. Okay. How about this then? Uh, Bosnia wasn't exactly about a democrat. It wasn't exactly a democratic revolution against tyranny. It was 
Uh, but it was it was a brutal regime killing innocent civilians. So that, so that to me is a fundamental. So question. that's it. That's it. But the killing has to be done in a in a war on a war footing, as opposed to merely just repressing, torturing, and all the rest of this. Well, that's to be system. So you can we can debate like what what does a war footing actually what what does that mean? But if 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 a regime is um, and we there was a debate that happened in 2011 about when is what is the atrocity threshold, if you will. And it's unfortunate that we have to even see things in that way of like, when is too much too much, right? Well, I mean, it's unfortunate, but I mean, yeah. So in, what, what, in Libya, what, yeah, in, in Libya with the Gaddafi regime, when when the death toll had reached about a thousand in just a matter of weeks, that seemed, and and it was clear there was a kind of war footing where the Gaddafi regime was actually talking about killing large numbers of Libyans and. The, the point of um, atrocity prevention is to not wait until the atrocities happen. You want to you wanna stop mass killing before it reaches a certain level, right? Yeah. And, and certainly in the case of Syria, when I remember the death toll in, um, in 2012, February 2012 was about 5,000. And that's when I think there were, there were a growing number of us. And I, I remember I wrote the first piece that was open to military intervention against the Assad regime around that time. And I brought up the 5,000 number as that's a very high number. And it's, it's ironic. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but it's at least weird to look back at that moment and say 5,000 seemed like a lot because it ultimately reached half a million and there was never an intervention. So, um, when there is an ongoing mass killing, and a regime shows an intent to continue that mass killing, I think then we at least have to have a conversation about what the U.S. can do through military force, even if we don't have a very clear vision of of what the... So, and this is always the criticism that people had towards me. They would say, Shadi, what about the end game? Will Syria become a democracy? Like, lay all that out. But I'm like, okay... And people were laying that out and in different levels of detail, maybe not to the satisfaction of the critics. But ultimately, my question to people was, if thousands of people are being killed, can we reduce the death toll? And if we can, if we can reduce that from say, I don't know, um, 30,000 to 10,000 in some hypothetical scenario, then, then it's a question of, Hey, we can save lives and we can, why can we do that? It's because there's ways to actually through things like no drive zones, no fly zones, all the things that, you know, we had all these discussions in 2012 about Syria and what we could do. But we know that we know how Assad kills people. We, and we make it more difficult to use his military machine right. to kill large numbers of people. Right. And we can create safe zones and, Buffer zones and humanitarian corridors, and maybe some, maybe not all of them would have been a hundred percent effective. But that was never the question for me. It was, can it be thirty percent effective or forty percent? Because then a large number of Syrian lives could have been saved. Um, <clears throat> are you uh, happy with the follow through on Libya? Oh boy, I wasn't prepared for this. Shit. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think that's the, you know, that's, that's sort of where the rubber meets the road because, um, because 
I, I think that was in in the uh, was in the Goldberg interview with Obama that you know he's he's so proud of himself for not doing anything in Syria because he learned his lesson in Libya um, because he was he o- was Ob- o- Obama never showed any kind of moral internal conflict about what he did or did not do in Syria and that was really hard for a lot of us to take that he dismissed his critics. Um, who to some extent had similar positions to the one that I just described that, you know, it was a real abdication to not do more on Syria, but specifically, you know, August 2013 was a turning point where the use of chemical weapons, one of the highest single day death tolls. And we were very close to intervening to yeah. the extent that you had the French jets ready. They yeah. were like, they were, and they were surprised that at the 11th hour, they 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 did not go through with what would have been the first round of airstrikes. So we shouldn't forget how close we were. The world, well, the international community, um, if you want to use that term, was. I don't, but okay. yeah, I was. That's why. I, that's why I said if you want to use that term, yeah. I'm like I probably Demir doesn't want to use right, that term, right? But anyway, so we were. It, it was close. The U.S. was close. France was close. Other allies would have been part of that effort. You know. Anyway. Um, but get back to but the fact that, but the the fact that Obama, in retrospect, but even really when this was going on, he seemed so intellectually and ideologically rigid, where he wasn't willing to give his critics any kind of benefit of the doubt. He saw them as like they just don't get it. They're like, you know, they don't understand like what I'm trying to do. I'm Obama. I I've thought this through. I'm calculating the costs, and and Obama could be very self righteous, sure, and he would assume the worst of his detractors, yeah. Even if his detractors wanted what they ultimately wanted was American policy to be better, even people inside of his administration who ultimately had to resign, like the former U.S. ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford, yeah, who tried so hard internally to kind of push Obama more in this direction, but ultimately he had to give up at some point. Anyway, Libya, I wrote a piece in 2016 for Vox. I think it's called something like um, Everyone Thinks the Libya Intervention. Wait. Um, well, don't look it up. Just, just I don't paraphrase like it. We, we'll put it in the show notes. But, just, uh, but I'm curious. Well, okay. So it's something like... Um, Everyone thinks that the intervention in Libya was a failure. Here's why they're wrong. Yeah. So this is 2016, several years afterwards, when no one wanted to talk about Libya. But you know me, like if no one is making an argument that I think is important, then that probably is an article I should write because you know. So and I don't mind, and if I believe in something, you know, I have I have nothing to apologize for, and I will still make this case to this very day. The, the NATO intervention in Libya was to me justified then, but in some sense always justified. Nothing can happen in a kind of consequentialist sense in the in the subsequent periods that could ever undo the justness of the initial intervention. Because I'm not a consequentialist. But that wasn't my question. My question was, would you prefer that we had done more afterwards? Oh, certainly, of course. And, that and was what, a made that to me that was the failure of Obama. Not that he intervened, but that he intervened. But then didn't actually follow through. I mean, so, so then we have to separate. We have to say the argument can't be that the original intervention was the problem because that wasn't actually where the failure happened. The failure happened in, in the, in the subsequent period 
where America kind of washed its hands of Libya and we we kind of outsourced it to European powers who weren't really into it. And the problem is if the US isn't leading, then then it's going to be harder for European powers to really to really exert effort and put the financial resources in. That's just the nature of the world that we live in. That U.S. leadership matters because it actually it um, it incentivizes our allies to do more and to stay serious about something, and also to know that they're not they're not doing this alone. Um, that that the U.S. will actually back them up, and if they feel the U.S. doesn't have their back. Then they're going to question how they're allocating resources and what their priorities are. That's precisely what happened in Libya. Everyone stopped caring to one degree or another. Um, and the world moved on. Even though Libyans were really open for, for, um, real U.S. and international assistance. I mean, there was a lot of pro-U.S. sentiment and even pro-French sentiment in particular. Remember, there was some talk about like, Oh, you know, we want to slaughter a sheep in honor of Sarkozy. I mean, that's the kind of rhetoric that we were hearing because Libyans felt that the U.S. and NATO and France, as France being one of the major players here, did really, um, Gaddafi wouldn't have fallen otherwise. And if you thought Gaddafi was going to kill your family or Gaddafi's forces would march into Benghazi, then it's no small matter that U.S. and U.S. and French jets and NATO more broadly actually stopped. They made it more likely that your family would survive. It's like it's that it's that personal. It's that proximate. So <clears throat> I don't want to, you know, most sort of uh, critics of this stuff say, well, why X and not Y, and then list any other intractable yeah, conflict, like Congo, not, like that yeah. was. Yeah, I remember hearing so, that. So, it's like, well, what about Congo? So I'm not. I'm not going there. I don't. I don't. Well, I don't no, no, no. But because I, I don't. I don't care. I think that's a stupid argument. Yeah. Let, let's is, just say. Yeah, let's just say, say it is. It is a really stupid argument, and it's one that people were actually making. And I couldn't tell were they arguing in bad faith because how could anyone in good faith make such a logically absurd argument? No, but my, maybe you have a more charitable understanding of what they were trying to say. No, I, I no, <laughs> okay. no, I'm not. I don't. I don't. I, I don't care for that argument. Um, my argument is more along the lines of uh, you would like us to have done more in follow up. Let's say. Let's even say that that you know uh, the initial intervention to stop uh, you know a clear a clear impending massacre. And the decapitation of a regime uh, to, you know, remove a particularly cancerous uh, figure. Um, let, let's let's grant that as justified. Um, but the 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 question becomes, and I think this is this is uh, to me the interesting thing about the Holbrook book is that uh, I'm not sure we know how to do the next step. Here, here, let me, you know, um, and Afghanistan ends up being the, the really interesting case there because we've been doing the next step in Afghanistan and you can cite to me all the, the progress, uh, that's happened. I don't know if you, if you got to this part in the book, it's towards the end. Actually, very interesting given who's running for office right now, but mm. it's an interaction between Biden and, and, uh, and Holbrook over Afghanistan. Did you get to that? No, part? I don't think I did actually. This is, uh, you know, one of the nice things that, that Packard does in the book is he just 
devotes several chapters to just uh, uh, Holbrook writing in his diary. Yeah. So you get Holbrook's voice really shining through. Anyway, uh, sorry. <coughs> Let's try it again. I saw Biden alone. When I mentioned the women's issue, Biden erupted. Almost rising from his chair, he said, I'm not sending my boy back there to risk his life on, to risk his life on behalf of women's rights. It just won't work. That's not what we're there for. I said, Joe, I agree with you. We're not there for that, but it has to be, but it has the following content. And I tried to outline for him the position Hillary and I had taken. He thought it was bullshit. And this spiraled into a much larger discussion concerning the whole course of what would happen. And this was quite extraordinary. Joe took the position, plain and simple, that we have to get out of Afghanistan. I reminded him that the president and Hillary, and indeed, I think, Joe himself had talked about a residual presence like Iraq, which he said he'd been working on most of the last year, that we would need congressional appropriations to train the army and the police and give economic assistance. We wouldn't get any of that if women were sent back to the black years and the dark ages. He said it ain't going to happen. He said, I don't understand politics. He said, we're facing a debacle politically. He said, we're going to lose the presidency in 2012 if unemployment remains high and Afghanistan was the other issue that could pull us down and we have to be on our way out, that we had to do what we did in Vietnam. This shocked me and I commented immediately that I thought we had a certain obligation to the people who had trusted us. He said, fuck that. We don't have to worry about that. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. I said, but there are larger strategic consequences here. And he said, what are they? And I tried to outline them. He clearly thought I was mouthing some kind of right-wing crap and it got quite intense. Yeah, well, in addition to kind of demonstrating that Biden is a bit of a jerk, um, uh, you know, I, yeah, Biden's personality, it doesn't come out. Anyway, whatever. But I think that... Um, what, what I'm getting at, I guess what, I, what, I, what I'm getting at in, in citing that is... Um, you know, uh, look, I'm not unsympathetic to Biden's position there. The kind of, you know, hey, political reality for one, right? That it's perceived by politicians that voters care. There's a fatigue. Um, but moreover, the thing that I want to highlight there and I want you to react to is again, a perception in 2012 by Biden that, uh, you know, despite the, uh, you know, uh, progress on, uh, something as distinct and not the only thing in Afghanistan, but women's rights, a human rights issue in Afghanistan, uh, was fleeting. And after, uh, you know, a decade now, much more than a decade, um, that, uh, it, it hadn't taken hold to a way that we could step away. So the question is, you know, pivoting off the Libya question, he said, we need to do more. I, I point you to Afghanistan and the book where we've done a whole lot more. Yeah. And, and, and that ends up being the, 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 the crux, I think, of the, the Holbrook thing. For me, Holbrook is incredibly inspiring. Uh, not least because I, I come from the region where he did stop the war. Um, and not least because I admire a great writer and a big brain. And that's, and Holbrook is both of those things. Um, and not least because as an immigrant, uh, I personally find myself more in the sort of uh, Europeanish approach of over describing a problem and and wringing one's hands. And it's <laughs> nice. I someone here in the states uh, said to me basically, uh, you know, in America we don't admire problems; we solve them. And that's Holbrook, I think, in a nutshell. Yeah. However, what I would argue is that from 1995 till you know. Holbrook's death, let's say, uh, we have tried to solve a bunch of problems and we found ourselves that we don't in fact 
know how to stop, how to solve a problem that's more than preventing a guy from massacring his population with mechanized infantry and artillery and air force. Beyond that, we actually yeah, we suck. Yeah. We're not very good at it. So therefore, it's not the the I think the smart and the smart question, the smart challenge to someone like you isn't, well, why one, why this and not Congo? Because that is a stupid thing. Yeah. But it's you'd have us do more in Libya. You think we know how to do Libya right? Or are are we talking about an open-ended commitment to getting Libya right and Syria right and Afghanistan right and Iraq right? Or are at some point do we need to pull back? Even even let's abstract the fact that these are political questions and oftentimes uh I'm I'm very sympathetic to the idea that political leadership is important to convince yeah. in a democracy the electorate to stick with something. But all the evidence is that we don't know how to do this, in fact. Yeah, and there's some, I think, really interesting sections in the book where pretty much Packer is talking about how we're shitty imperialists. Like, we, if, if we want to actually be involved to, the, to this extent in other countries and to think about their internal politics, like, we Amer- like Americans don't have a culture of having local expertise and like staying with it and having building building these durable institutions that can actually deliver on state building or nation building and that's actually somewhat to our credit because we're not an empire we don't think or well we're not an empire at least in the way that Britain was that we don't think imperially where the british had a whole kind of um structure for essentially managing the affairs of other countries and and that's not, and so it's good that we're not actually trying to do that in some ways, but it also is a weakness in the sense that we don't really think about the day after in any kind of systematic way. I'll say a couple things. On Afghanistan, I put it in a different category because I see it as originally a tainted or even flawed intervention. I put Afghanistan as a separate category because we intervened there against the Taliban government for what were primarily national security reasons. And I think that the intervention was justified, but it, it didn't have the same kind of moral content that, say, intervening against the Assad regime would have or or what the actual NATO intervention in Libya, I think, suggested, or Bosnia or Kosovo. These were primarily, and this is what Rwanda would have been, primarily moral and humanitarian intervention. So separate categories. And I would not have been opposed. I, I've never felt strongly about staying in Afghanistan. I've never, that I've always been conflicted about that. And I've, and I've generally been open to the argument that, uh, that we should have been thinking about how to reduce our presence like 10 years ago when we were stronger and the Taliban was weaker. That's when a negotiation with the Taliban would have been more effective and we would have been negotiating from a position of strength. And that's why many years ago, I don't even know when the conversation started, but must have been like six, seven years ago or even more than that, when, when there was talk about is a peace settlement possible with at least elements of the Taliban, I, I was open to that. And we should have been considering that much more seriously a long time ago. So that's that's what I'd say in Afghanistan, and I, I think that it's absurd that we've been there for 18 years. And in some sense, I'm sympathetic to Trump's approach on Afghanistan precisely because 
at some point you got to say we've tried every, we've tried a lot of different things. Obama's approach too, ultimately, right? He failed. He got rolled by the generals. Trump refuses to get rolled. But anyway, but I think on. Obama would have never been comfortable with the optics of a, a serious advanced peace negotiation with the Taliban. Precisely. At 9-11 yeah, Camp David. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's that's obviously probably pushing it a little bit in terms of bad optics, but Trump doesn't give a shit. No. So Trump has Trump has more freedom to do things that a Democrat would have had a lot of trouble doing. Can you imagine Republicans going on about how um this the semi-Muslim president, Obama, because what, like 40% according to polls of Republicans thought Obama was Muslim. Obama was so insecure about some of these perceptions, or maybe insecure isn't the right word, but sensitive at the very least. Trump doesn't care. Yeah, whatever. He'll, sure. he'll make peace with the words, like whatever. Right. Um, and uh, Obama did never would have had the freedom to do that. So there's that. Anyway, but I would say when it comes to Libya or really any case when we're thinking about the day after, I'm not calling for some panacea. It's not as if Libya was ever going to become a perfect democracy. So when we talk about how much Libya is struggling now or how much it was struggling in 2013 or 2015, we're, we're doing this American thing of saying, well, oh, why isn't it a functioning democracy when that was never what the original intervention was? It was always going to be a country that was going to struggle and have real civil conflict and have um, warlords and different rebel groups competing for influence in a post-war context. So we also have to be clear about this is a process. It takes time to play out, but at least Libyans have a chance now. And I would have said that in the absence of intervention, Libya would have been more like Syria Libya is bad, but at least we're not seeing the death toll and the devastation that we've seen in, say, Syria, even on like a somewhat comparable per capita level. So that's just worth remembering that what what are what are we judging the reality of Libya to? If we're judging it to some imaginary state where everything goes relatively smoothly, that's silly. And Americans are always like, well, it's not a, oh, look at, they're fighting each other and we can't, oh my God, look, you know, yeah, but, but we have to compare what Libya would have likely been under Gaddafi. That's what we have to compare it to, not to some imaginary state. So let me ask you then a, uh, <clears throat> a related question, maybe. Uh, you're not happy with the level of follow through in Libya, but at least you got, your R2P action, um, responsibility to protect for people who don't know yeah, so, the, the, so, the lingo. So, so you got the, uh, responsibility to protect precedent used, right? Um, since, I, I mean, I mean, I could press you now to say, what would you have preferred to, to for of us to done Libya and why do you think that would have worked? given the warlordism and all the other things. And I grant your point that, you know, at least it's not Syria. It's not half a million dead. It's, it's uh, orders of magnitude fewer, and it's low-grade chaos and uh, low-grade civil war. But I mean, are you are you fine with that as a as a template, as a workable template? That you know, R two P boiled down again, responsibility to protect boiled down to its minimum, i.e., uh, 
a leader with access to uh, uh, an army starts massacring his people. We put an end to that, and then wash your hands. Done. No, I don't like that. And but you know, I, I wish it were otherwise. I, I I think that there is a there is a middle ground template that actually isn't about keeping boots on the ground. I'm not talking about an open ended military commitment on Libyan soil. I am talking about serious engagement, including at a pretty high level, instead of the president completely delegating that to God knows who and not actually in saying, hey, because he never wanted to, like, it, it was to even get Obama to support intervention in Libya. That was a real pull. And he was very, very reluctant. And that was, if you recall, this is ancient history, I guess, but the whole phrase, um, uh, leading from behind, Obama didn't want to lead. So even when he led, it wasn't really leadership, if that's how, you know. So um, Obama never wanted to be involved in all of this stuff. So whenever he did something, he did it like he did it in a very kind of um, uncommitted way. And ultimately that that hurt us that he didn't he. I don't even know how to put it. He didn't I don't want to say he didn't care about Libya he just didn't want that to be his priority. He didn't want to deal with it. For him, the Middle East was a mess. It was a mess to be managed. It was about crisis management. And with someone with that kind of outlook is, ne- is never going to have the right approach because you can't think systematically about the day after and really put real governmental resources towards thinking about what that might look like in senior level coordination with your European counterparts, the president has to really be on board with that. And the president was not on board with that. He did not want to deal with it. And also we can talk about Iraq withdrawal. He delegated that um, to Biden, but you know, he Obama did not, um, when he became president, he did not want to deal with Iraq. And we saw, you know, this is a longer conversation, we saw what the... Um, what the negative effects were in kind of not having our eye on the ball, so to speak. And um, ISIS was able ultimately, you know, there was a vacuum in Iraq and we weren't paying attention to it. And Biden, as I think um, former Secretary Bob Gates once memorably conveyed, and this is a paraphrase, um, Biden has been wrong, or I don't know, maybe this is apocryphal, but I think this was from uh, Secretary Gates, something along these lines, that uh, Biden has been wrong about every major foreign policy issue of like the last 40 years, which is saying, which is interesting because there's this perception that Biden is actually, he's strong on foreign policy. Well, he thinks about foreign policy. He's done stuff on foreign policy, but he sucks on foreign policy. I mean, that's, so, you know, let's, um, anyway, um, well, well, we do have to wrap up. I'll just say, like, we should actually continue different aspects. I think we kind of, we put a lot of things on the table. I'll also just say that, um, yeah, it's it's hard for me to. I've been reminded that I don't speak on these issues, and maybe I'm being self-critical here, but I don't know if I speak on these issues with the kind of ease that I speak about, say, ideological issues or the role of religion in public life. And and the reason for that, I think, is. This is like really when I'm reminded of these debates and having been a part of some of these debates myself, it it took a it took a toll on me. It really took a toll on me. 
what what happened in Syria, what happened in Libya, and it was personal. It wasn't just me being um, a dispassionate analyst. I really wanted the Middle East to be better, and I thought that it could be better. And it's just a constant reminder of what was lost, and it's a tragic story. And to like remember that and to kind of go through that again. Um, but also there's this sense of futility that I don't know. There's no clear way for us to be a lot better. And I'm starting to lose faith in what we can actually be or become. Like, did we lose that moment? And, you know, can't like, can we actually recover that moment? And I'm not a super optimistic person on that score. I think that the moment has passed and my side of this debate, we lost. We're in the minority, and I don't know if there's a lot of people who really feel passionately about the things that I feel passionate about when it comes to the Middle East. I want to do what I can to make the case and to try to convince more Americans and certainly more policymakers that there is a vision that we can have on the Middle East that is true to our ideals um, and brings back some of these ideals like the support for democracy abroad back to the forefront but I, I feel it's really important to me, but I also feel a certain level of exhaustion just talking about it because I see the uphill battle and I see the resistance to the arguments that I believe in. Anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, for what it's worth, I, I think, uh, I think it's a mistake to think that, that, uh, that, that element of, Americanism is gone for good. It's never gone for good. It's always there and it always yeah, makes Yeah, and I want to fight for it. So, and I want to be there in that debate. And I, I don't want to sound trite. I mean, what is it to say that I want to fight for it? What does that even mean? But maybe like, a, you know, as an idea in, in maybe a next episode or a subsequent episode, we could maybe start a conversation with, cause I think that you're actually one of the best critics of my position and we've had other conversations where you've really challenged me and we've we've touched on some of that now but we can maybe even dive into it more that um you challenged me on these things um in a not in the like not in the dumb obama way but in the kind of serious intellectual way that i think is required here um but um but I am thinking more, and maybe as a kind of like teaser, I am thinking about a new project. I'm not sure what exact form it will take, where I try to, I try to lay out the arguments in a more systematic way for why we have to return to, like, support for democracy abroad. I want to make that case. I want to. I don't know. I even feel exhausted just thinking about it. I don't know. Hey, I, I think I think a lot of people around town are, are working on that right now. So I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can. But uh, in, a, in a so, but yes, I, in a way that's 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 hackneyed and, and in fact, I yeah, think I'm off the. I think a lot of people will sympathize with aspects of my argument, but I take it kind of far, and I'm kind of maximalist. And if I actually laid out exactly what my vision would be for U.S. Um, support for democracy in the Middle East, I think it would be well beyond what I think a lot of people, even those who are sympathetic to my viewpoint, are willing to ex- to accept. But maybe we can talk about that and, and lay and I can lay it out, and you can respond and say why you think um, I I might be tempted into some kind of hubristic enterprises as a result of my ideas. But I, I want to. 
I like that you're someone who who can actually like cha- like really challenge me on on some of these things, and I think there's a lot more to say. Happy happy to keep talking, Shadi. All right. <laughs> okay. See you later. <laughs> Bye.